We are in Isaiah. We are looking at chapters uh, 63 and 64 this morning. So again, uh, as I mentioned over the past few weeks, you will need your Bibles open or your Bible app open um, to follow along. I have some verses up there. Um, you'll need your Bibles open or your Bible app open. That's great as we look at two chapters. This sermon is um, number 47 through this great book of Isaiah, who, by the way, is the most quoted Old Testament prophet in all the New Testament. Most quoted prophet in all the New Testament. And other than Psalms, he's the second, number two, Psalm number one, most quoted author in Old Testament uh, for the New Testament. So very important, we're calling this series the gospel according to Isaiah, because in Isaiah we have this, this rich and glorious and, and a wonderful revelation, uh, disclosure of the person and work of Jesus in the book of Isaiah. So the gospel according to Isaiah. Uh, we said earlier on that there are three major sections. Chapters 1 through 39 was the first major section. God uh, calls Isaiah in chapter 6 for the prophetic ministry, declaring the holiness of God, the sovereignty of God over all nations, calling God's people for their covenant-breaking sins. He also said as we close chapter 39 that God, uh, uh, Isaiah has been pointing to that a greater king is coming, a true and better king uh, who will reign and rule in the eternal kingdom in justice and in righteousness. And of course we know the New Testament opens up is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of David. The next section, chapter 40 through 55, we find uh, God's people in Babylon. Remember they went to exile for their sin and God brought up Isaiah to speak to them and 150 years later, but it written in his word, uh, to comfort his people and to remind the people that God did not leave his remnant in exile, that he will deliver them. He will bring them salvation out of Babylon captivity, and he will do it through the anointed one, the, the servant of the Lord. His name is Cyrus, king of Persia. Persian army comes in and destroys Babylon, and Persia then sets Israel free and allows them to go back from exile back to the promised land. We said that the anointed one, the Syria, uh, excuse me, the Persian king Cyrus, is just pointing to a true and better, not only king, but a servant, true and better anointed one. We, anointed one means Messiah. The Cyrus is really pointing to the greater and better, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're in the third section, which goes from chapters 56 through 66, and we're noticing, if you've been around the past two weeks, we're noticing that the many of the themes in the first portion of the book has been um, you know, brought to the forefront again. First few chapters, 56 through 59, God's people have returned from exile, and God reminds them what it means to live under the righteousness of God. What are God's people are supposed to do or look and live like? But then Isaiah is quick again to remind God's people of their failures and their rebellion against God, their, their lack of leadership, their hypocrisy, their idolatry. We've seen that over and over again. As God points out the sin of his people, Isaiah is reminding us that God is also gracious and merciful. And there's a message of good news in the midst of sin and rebellion, the gospel according to Isaiah. That, that's why we, 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 we named it this way. And Isaiah is not only saying that salvation comes to the Jewish people, the Israelites, but also Isaiah is very uh, clear on this, that salvation and mercy and grace has come through the Jewish people for all nations. We're going to see that in the Gospel of Luke, which we start in September. We're going chapter by chapter, verse by verse, through the Gospel according to Luke. We're going to see Luke is saying, 
Jesus is the Messiah, the promised one, but he has been given to the whole world. All the nations will come. Every tongue, every tribe will receive grace and salvation through the work and person of Jesus. In fact, God, through the true and better king and the true and better suffering servant, the Lord Jesus, the true and better Messiah, will restore and will redeem his people. That's what Isaiah is saying. One of the things, again, we've seen over and over again is man's inability to save himself. Man's inability to live righteously before God and that God must intervene on behalf of sinners like you and me to rescue, redeem, and forgive. Last week, chapter 60 through 62 is really the centerpiece, if you can think of it this way, between 55, excuse me, 56 and 66, that last section, 56, 66, right in the center, there, there is chapter 60 through 62, okay? And in that section, we saw last week, chapter 60, the future glory of Zion, Jerusalem, the city of God, chapter 60. Chapter 61, we saw that how God is going to do that and describes Jesus who will accomplish that exaltation through the mission of the gospel, that the light of God has come, chapter 62, verse, uh, 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. The light has come, God is going to restore his place, his, his house, through the work of Jesus. Then chapter 62 is another look at the restored city, the glorious presentation of Zion. So you have this rescuing, glorification, exaltation of Zion. You have Jesus is going to do it. And then this presentation, a new apparel, chapter 62 talked about, and a new name. But we turn to chapter 63 today. And what Isaiah is going to do is Isaiah is going to pick up the theme of what Christ is going to do, the Messiah is going to do when he comes again. Now, if you remember last week when we looked at chapter 61, Turn there with me in your Bibles if you have one, not your app. We said that Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, is where Jesus, when he was at home in Nazareth, was, was in the synagogue, as he does on every Sabbath, on the Saturday, Jesus went to the synagogue. They handed Jesus, the prophet, the one that was doing miracles, that there was a buzz going on in Nazareth, they handed him a scroll. He took the scroll of Isaiah, Luke chapter 4, and opened the scroll right to Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. Jesus opens the scroll, he didn't have books back then, it was a scroll, and he read chapter 61, verse 1. He said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, right? So the gospel to the poor in spirit, bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to those who are captive to sin, death, and hell, opening the prisons to those who are bound. And then verse 2 of chapter 61, Jesus said to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. In other words, I am the true and better year of Jubilee where Israel was to release all debts. I am here. Rolled up the scroll and sat down. We said last week that he read chapters, he read verse 1 and verse 2 and stopped, if you remember. He didn't read the second part of verse 2, which says, and the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus didn't read that verse. Why? It's not that he can't fulfill it or he will not fulfill it, he will. But he did not fulfill it in his first coming. 
Remember in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus says what? The Son of Man came uh, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. But here in 63, Isaiah picks up chapter 61, verse 2b. The promise, the revelation, the fulfillment of God's vengeance executed by King Jesus, the Messiah, the suffering servant, the vengeance of God. That's why we do expository preaching, if you're wondering. We do expository preaching here. We go through books of the Bible, both old and new, because it helps us to deal with and to look through and to learn passages like this. I don't know how many pastors wake up in the morning and say, let me speak about the vengeance of God. There are probably some out there. That's all they do. But when you go through books of the Bible, you come to passages where we talk about the vengeance of God. It helps us, listen, family, to grow in the knowledge of God's word, to grow in our discipleship. Vengeance is not something that everyone likes to talk about, but it's scripture, and we're going to learn and grow together. It's exercising, thinking deeply of God, necessary for our spiritual growth. Because when I'll tell you something, when everything drops out and the bottom falls out in your life, you're not going to remember the three cute things someone once said on how to live your life the best right now. You're going to run to the sovereignty, goodness, and mercy and drink deeply of God. Okay? Four headings. Divine vengeance, daily remembrance, desire descendants, and deep repentance. Okay? Open your Bibles. Chapter 63. Here we go. Hear the word of the Lord, the sovereign Lord. It's authoritative, inspired, infallible word. Chapter 63, I'll read verses 1 through 6. Who is this who comes from Eden in crimson garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. The watchman who's seeing from a distance is calling out, Who is this? It is I. God answers, I speak in righteousness, mighty to save. And the watchman responds, why is your apparel red and your garments like, like his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden, God says, the winepress alone. And from the peoples, no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their, their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. End quote. End of scripture. Anybody want to preach that? Let me ask you this question. What if there was no justice in the earth? What if there was no justice? What if there was no right, no wrong, no punishment for evil? You see, being part of the Imago Dei, the image and likeness of God, God created us in the Imago Dei, there is a sense of justice that's part of who we are. Therefore, when we see injustices, we get angry. Rightfully so. When we, when we see people being wronged and the wrong going unpunished, we rightly get angry and we cry out for justice. 
Therefore, it should be no surprise if, if, we move, if we are moved by anger when justice is thwarted, that the God of the universe, our creator, who, who declared what's right, declared what's wrong, declared what's evil and sinful, gets rightfully angry when justice is perverted, when sin and evil go unpunished. Because a holy God cannot allow injustice to prevail. He must punish sin, he must punish evil. If God does not bring justice to sin and evil, he's not holy. Quite honestly, he's not even good. But he does. Just like a good judge administers good judgment from the bench. Notice the text. Isaiah describes someone coming from Edom. As I said, a watchman. Who is he? The Edomites were descendants of Esau, if you're familiar with the Old Testament. His brother was Jacob. They came to represent in the Old Testament as people who despised God. They had a a history of a vicious, hostile attitude toward God and toward God's people. So we see this watchman seeing someone come from the enemies of God. The Lord is coming from Basra, which is the city the capital city, excuse me, of Edom. And what is interesting is the word Edom means red. And the imagery of blood is used in these verses. Bazra comes from the root word grape gathering. Also fitting quite well with the imagery of treading the wine press, verses 2 and 3. Family, this is, this is the imagery of God's wrath being poured out on evildoers. The avenger is himself, God himself. And the stains on his garments are blood because, look what it says, he had trotted the nations in the winepress of his wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments. Why? Verse 4. The day of vengeance is the year of his redeemed people. And he had long had this day in his heart, in his plan, for his purposes. We said several times early in our study that when God visits and judges and and brings disaster and and destruction upon his enemies, it means salvation for God's people. They go hand in hand. And when the year of the Lord's redemption comes to an end, the day of God's uh, vengeance begins because uh, the time of God's wrath is being poured out on the godless, those who deny and rebel against our God. Revelation 19 stands as a clear fulfillment of the blood-splattered warrior of Isaiah 63. We find it, again, toward the end of, cre- end of time in Revelation 19. It's the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're wondering. As Jesus is depicted as wearing a robe stained in blood, slaughtering his foes with the sword coming from his mouth. Maybe you don't even know this. Maybe this is the first time you're hearing this. Revelation 19.11 says this. Then I saw... Open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in robe dripped in blood. And his name by which he is called is the Word of God. We know that's Jesus. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from Jesus' mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. 
He will rule them with a rod of iron and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. That's Jesus of Nazareth, our Savior. But family, I don't want you to miss the, the wonderful truth of God's grace and truth. Look at verse 4 again. Day of vengeance, ye of redemption. I looked, no one to help. There was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought my what? Salvation. Vengeance, redemption. Upholding and salvation. From these verses, you can see where the, where the justice of God and the love of God meets. There's vengeance for justice. There is redemption in his love. Family, holiness requires justice. God's holiness and justice, therefore, satisfied in Calvary, on the cross. And for those who repent and believe the gospel... There is redemption, love, salvation, but those who reject the gospel, there is sin, judgment, and wrath. But justice will be served. So I would ask my friends, family here, why would you not embrace his love now and escape the wrath to come? When we talk about vengeance, we're not talking about sinful vengefulness. I'm going to get you back. It is the fitting, exact retribution that is suitable for sin and rebellion. See, family, God's wrath is settled. It is, it is unchanging anger and displeasure against sin, evil, and brokenness. What happens is, we don't want to acknowledge that ourselves, which we will soon. We want to say, yeah, that evil, that was a good decision, for that person deserved it. That's the problem. You see, God's wrath is, is not this uncontrollable uh, emotional outburst inappropriate rage it is a natural response of a holy god to sin and rebellion it's always just it is always righteous by these acts of destruction jesus will will punish remove the ungodly and establish an eternal reign where there is justice and righteousness over the earth a few years ago we studied the gospel according to john together verse by verse john chapter 5 jesus speaking he says the father judges no one but has given all judgment to the son and Jesus does not need any help 63 verse 1 marching in the greatness of his strength it is I mighty to save I have tread in verse 3 the winepress alone verse 5 I look no one there to help I was appalled no one to hold uphold me my own arm brought salvation <laughs> the wrath of God will fall on the one who is punished but, but what if, what if the wrath of God against sin, evil, and rebellion would be removed? What if it, what if it would be removed from us? What if wrath comes down and punishes sin, but doesn't come down on us, but comes down on the one who in our place bears the guilt for our sin? What if condemnation does fall, and condemnation comes with a full force, but not on us, but on a substitute? Then God can show just justice, his justice, his salvation and redemption to the one upon whom his wrath had formerly rested but now has been satisfied. That's the heart of the gospel. Substitution is the heart of the gospel, the heart of redemption, the heart of salvation. Let's not forget this mighty warrior in Revelation 19 
how he defeated sin and evil in the first place, right? He took it upon himself and defeated sin right there on the cross. The fact is that our Savior in love took the wrath of his redeemed, that's us, on himself. And the fact that he will also come back on the last day for those who reject his love and salvation. And the expectation is wrath. God indeed is not, God indeed is angry and wrathful towards sin and rebellion. But in Christ, in the heart of the gospel, his wrath was turned, propitiated. It fell on Jesus. And those who are in Christ, he receives the wrath in their place, we receive his righteousness. That's the heart of the gospel. It's on the cross where the just wrath of a just and holy God was poured out and satisfied. It's on the cross where God's infinite love and holiness is on display. Family, if you're, if you're here today and you have never run to the Lamb who was slain, do so today. God, through His Word, pleads with you, enter His love before he comes back in wrath. Number two, daily remembrance. Isaiah beautifully begins this section by introducing the theme of God's steadfast love. Look at verse seven with me. 63 verse seven. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us. You see what he's doing? I will recount, I will recollect, I will remember so that all of us and the greatness, goodness, the house of Israel may be granted them according to his compassion, according to his abundance of his steadfast love. All right? So God's praises come to us as we declare the message of the gospel. That's what we do on Sunday morning. We're rehearsing and recalling and remembering the gospel. I stand up here every Sunday. All I got for you is Jesus. I got nothing else. And we praise him together. We praise him together. And that's what he does. He, he starts, the, the, the writer starts to the, uh, remember the events in the history of Israel, retelling the story of love and praise of God. And, and the speaker remembers these events. He, he is telling them because he wants us all to gather together and worship. Look at verse 8 and 9. Remarkable verses, I'll tell you what. Verses 8 and 9 are remarkable. It speaks of God's affliction and God's salvation. Look at it. The language here used incredible how God carries our sorrows. Right? In their affliction, verse 9, he was afflicted. And God carries our, the language is just unbelievable. When we're afflicted and we suffer in his namesake, we remember that he too is bearing that affliction and suffering. Remember the apostle Paul, before he was an apostle and a murderer of Christians. And the Lord knocked him off the horse and said, why are you persecuting me? Jesus had already ascended. Because he was persecuting the church. Calvin writes this. In order to move us more powerfully and draw us to himself, the Lord accommodates himself to the manner of men by attributing to himself all the affection, love, and compassion which a father can have, end quote. Verse 10. He becomes their savior and the angel of his presence save them. See that in verse 10? Very interesting. Uh, excuse me, that was verse 9. Okay. Angel of his presence. The Hebrew literally is the angel of his face, the panim, the face of God. The Lord's very presence. The angel comes from the Lord's very presence. Have you heard that before? 
Remember, the word angel could be messenger. John 1. In the beginning was what? The Word. And the Word was with God, face to face. Distinct, yet one. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, face to face, and the Word was God. He, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, was in the beginning with God. This angel, I believe, is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. In the face, presence, save them. But unfortunately, as we've seen over and over again, Verse 10, despite the presence of God, despite their salvation, they rebelled, verse 10. God's children paid no attention to him, wanted nothing to do with him, and just, it wasn't the Assyrians, it wasn't the Babylonians and really that defeated Israel, it was their own sin and rebellion against God. They're thinking, look, I could do this. You remember the stories, we went through this book before. I'll do this on my own, I'll get some help from foreign nations. There wasn't a turning to God, there was rebellion, and God is not mocked. No matter what you see today, God's not mocked. He became their enemy. That's what it says. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy. And look what it says. And grieved the Holy Spirit. See that? But they rebelled, verse 10, and they grieved his Holy Spirit. Hmm. Usually when we speak of the Spirit of God in the Old Testament, a lot of times you see it descending and ascending and, and empowering, whether it's the King David or other people, divine empowerment. Uh, but here, the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, His presence and His power is, is active in the community of God's people. They're grieving the Spirit. They're causing the stress and pain of the Spirit. The Spirit was hurt by Israel's stubborn defiance of their God. He grieved His Holy Spirit. Working in the community, verse 10. And then verse 11 through 14, having remembered the chastening of the Lord, he reflects on the things that God has done for them. He, he says, then he, that's Israel, remembered, verse 11. He remembered the days of old. He remembered the, the Red Sea crossing, the, the power of God delivering his people from the Egyptians in the sea. He remembered how the walls, opened, the, excuse me, the, the sea opened up and there was a big wall of water And as they walked through this valley, making a passageway, they walked through this valley, and the imminent death came to the Egyptians. People went down into the sea as they crossed to the other side. And it's Jesus Christ, I think this whole whole passage, Jesus Christ is leading them, the presence of God, by the pillar of fire, and will lead us all, I think, through that valley of the shadow of death. To the glorious side of the resurrection. The dawn ended, the terrifying night. God saw, bring, saw the, they, they saw God bring them up from the sea. And look what it says in verse 12. Making himself an everlasting name. Verse 14, and a glorious name. In spite of their rebellion, listen. In spite of their rebellion, God's grace was upon them. Look at verse 14. They're in a desert God didn't abandon them. He's given his people rest. Rest in Canaan. As cattle go down into the valley, they find rest and refreshing provision. All this was done to demonstrate his grace and his holiness, his love and his wrath to the Israelites and to the world. Although he would be justified in wiping them off the face of the earth, For their repeated breaking of the covenant, he doesn't do so. 
family, the gospel according to Isaiah, rebellion and grace. Rebellion and grace is to be remembered. That's why we talk about here at the church all the time. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. Preach the gospel to yourself. Remind yourself of what a sinner you are, but what a greater mercy God has for you. Jerry Bridges, to preach the gospel to yourself means that you are continually face up to your own sinfulness and then flee to Jesus through faith in his shed blood and righteous life. It means that you appropriate again and again by faith the fact that Jesus fully satisfied the law of God and that he is your propitiation. He took the wrath that you deserve and that God's holy wrath is no longer directed toward you, end quote. It was placed on Jesus. Preaching the gospel family is reminding ourselves every day, over and over again, of the complete and total forgiveness we have in Christ. How the gospel cleanses us, how the gospel empowers us, how the gospel gives us our identity and gives us our purpose. It's answering doubts and fears through the word and the gospel. Paul Tripp, make it a daily practice. This is, good. This is a good reminder. Make it a daily practice to, one, gaze on the beauty of Christ. Number two, remember who we are as children of God. Number three, rest in his power and rest in his provision. Number four, and then act in reliance upon Christ. Great words. Jude 21 says, you know what? Keep yourself in the love of God. Isaiah, how do we, how do we keep ourselves in the love of God? Isaiah would say by, by rethinking, by remembering, by recalling all that God has done. The Savior of the world shares in our affliction, given us his presence, redeems us and cares for us. Could God be calling you this morning? Could God be calling someone in this room this morning to return to their first love? To remember and to recollect your first love. The whisper of the Holy Spirit of those, if he's speaking to your heart, is a grieved lover who tells you that it's not too late to return and repent and return to him. It's not too late. God cares for you. Like the prodigal son in the far country who was impoverished and in need, came to himself, remembering what is available in the father's house. And after evaluating how silly and stupid and, and, and foolish he's been, gets up and goes. Father, I've committed sin against you. Divine vengeance, daily remembrance, desired descendants. Look at verse 15. Here's a prayer of God's people asking God to come down, come down from heaven. What that means is make your presence known, right? You don't need to say, hey, God, uh, you're not here. Can you, can you, you know, just leave where you are and just, it means I want to sense your presence. Come down, I want to sense your presence. Sometimes it feels, I think you see in chapter uh, 63, verse 15, sometimes it, we sense the zeal and the strength and the presence of God is far from us. Amen? Like sometimes it's just that way. We feel like that. We, could, we need to cry out to God. Verse 15, look down from heaven and see your holy and beautiful habitation. Where are your zeal and your might? The, the stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. Now, I find that the stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. Talking about God. Obviously, not literal. And what Isaiah wants to show us, what God wants to show us, that he feels deeply for us. Not superficially, not sporadically, but sometimes, if we're honest, we don't, we don't experience, we don't sense God's presence and love. At other times, it seems to be poured out on us, and we're just overwhelmed by his love. 
Well, the truth is the, the gospel teaches us that Christ has brought us into relationship that the work of redemption is done. It is finished, he cried. The Holy Spirit has come. But sometimes, if we're honest, I think they're just being honest. He's not attacking God. He's not doubting. He's saying, look, where's your presence? Where's your power? Where, where is it in our experience now? Where's your zeal? Where's your might? Why is your love that you feel in the innermost parts of you being withhold, withheld from us right now? Not only come down, come down as our father. You see what he says? Abraham and Jacob, they may have forgotten you, but Lord, you are our help. You are our redeemer, verse 16, from of old. God the Father feels affection and compassion for his children, and he redeems them. Verse 17. Seems a little odd. Look at verse 17. Oh, Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your inheritance. It almost sounds like, God, we're living in this sin and rebellion um, because it's your fault. Why have you done this to us? That's not what it's saying. All the rest of Scripture is really clear. God does not, is not the first cause of our sin. God is pure, God is holy, and God abhors sin more than we do. But hear this. If God does not intervene in your life, if God does not intervene into my life and lets us stray and do whatever we want, the consequences ultimately will be hardening of heart. In other words, the guy, the, 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 Isaiah is crying out, Lord, don't leave us in our sin. It's inevitable. I have sinful natures. We have sinful hearts. We have sinful rebellion. And if you just walk away from us, guess what? This is what's going to happen. This is what's going to happen. Our hearts are hardened. Our, our, our hearts are hardened. Verse 17. Don't make us do that. It will act as if we've never been ruled. Verse 19. Isn't that true? If God does not intervene, and God, Isaiah says, return. Verse 17. Now, as we jump into chapter 64, again, we see leave the heavens. Come show yourself. Bring yourself. Bring another appearance. Just like, South, look what it says, South, uh, Mount Sinai. As the, as the mountains quake at your presence, the fire kindles, causes water to boil, make your name known. Have you, ever, have you ever got to the place where you were in so much grief and suffering and pain that you just cried out, I just need your presence right now? Early on in my walk with Christ, I, I remember like it was yesterday, I, I, I had waken up one morning, and a thought popped into my head. It, it probably was from the enemy, maybe trying to, me, to, to, to get away from the presence of God in my life, or maybe it was my own flesh, I'm not sure. But the thought that popped up into my head was something that someone said, a family friend said, when they found out that now I've become a Christian, they said, it's just a phase, I was 23, 4, it's just a phase he's going through, he'll get over it. Well, it popped into my head one morning. And you know what? Quite honestly, I began to think. I didn't really sense the presence of God. And I began to think, what if that's true? What if the life of drug addiction, sexual promiscuity, all the things I left behind, what if it's true in six months from now, I'm back doing that stuff? 
Maybe that's possible. Maybe that can happen. I remember just having those thoughts within the next half hour, 40 minutes. I remember getting in my car. I remember the car I was driving. I remember where I was going. And as I was driving, the Holy Spirit, through the Word of God, began to reel to me the presence of God in my life. I remember what it was. All of a sudden, the little bit of scripture that I had learned over the past few months came flooding in. And the word of God by the spirit of God began to just overwhelm me and I had to pull over. I was weeping like a baby. I was weeping like a baby. God used his word to reveal his presence and I was overwhelmed by the love and the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness all over again. And I realized over the years that those days come and go, right? They're, they're mountaintop experiences. You, you sense the presence of God. And then there are valleys where you're, not, you're in hardship and you say, God, come down. Tim Keller would say those, those, those valleys are times where you, you can't see the trees. You can't see where you're going. It's when you get to the top that you can look down and say, oh, that's where I was. That's where I'm going. Now I see what this is all about. But let me ask you this. What if you never get to that mountaintop? Or what if you get to the mountaintop and many times you do see God's hand? And I, I agree with Tim Keller. But what if you get up there and you look down and, and you still can't figure things out? It's that time. We're in the valley or you can't see what God is doing. We cling to the gospel. We cling to the word of God. In it, he offers himself. Tim Keller, God takes our misery and suffering so seriously that he's willing to take it on himself, end quote. You see, Christ's suffering was not pretentious. He endured the agony of the cross and hell itself. In the gospel, we find a God that not only acknowledges our sincere suffering, but experiences it for himself. In Christ, in Jesus, the Son of God, we find the God-man who is willing to step down from glory to experience every kind of suffering. He had a right to claim all the kingdoms but he came as a humble human. Though he lived without sin, he was rejected by those whom he loved, beaten by those he cared for, and killed by those he came to save. He himself understands. And it's through Christ. It is through the Messiah. It's through his presence. Listen, he never promises. He never promised we're not going to have heartbreaking times, suffering times, but what he promised was a God who has and who does and who will suffer when we do. There's no suffering, listen, that can overcome the compassionate presence of Christ. Sometimes that's just what we need. Verse 5a closed this section where God promised to meet him who joyfully works salvation. Who, those who remember you in your ways. God meets us. God encounters us. Interacts with those who rejoice in the gospel. Rejoice remembering the sovereign goodness and gracious ways of God. The joy he talks about is a right relationship with God. Those who are walking in obedience to Christ. Through the gospel. Remember. Religion says I obey. So God will love me. It's religion is bondage. I obey and therefore God will love me. That's religion and bondage. God loves me in Christ and the gospel, and therefore, in his love, I obey. Big difference. Slippery slope, but very dangerous. Lastly, deep repentance. Notice in verse 5b and 6, there's an honest confession of sin. A clear description of what sin is and what sin has done. Isaiah uses the simile like several times. Look, God, you were angry because we sinned. 
right? It made us unclean, like one who is unclean, like the unclean one, like the leper who cries out, unclean, unclean. To be unclean was God's way to show us so that we recognize and understand his holiness and what sin really does to us. Sin defiles. Sin makes us unfit to enter into the presence of God. Even in that day, it made you unfit to enter into the, the, the Lord's people's presence to gather for worship. Unclean. Sin also make, likens us, look, to filthy rag. To the filthy rag. I hate to tell you this, but that Hebrew word means menstrual pad. A dirty menstrual pad. That's the Hebrew Think he's trying to tell us something? Our righteous deeds are like polluted garments. It's not just that our sins smell putrid. Our righteousness is putrid before him. The deeds we think, oh, we're gonna really going to work our way and do righteous deeds and make our way into heaven. God says, no, sorry. They're contaminated. Charles Spurgeon, this is, you know, a few hundred years ago, he writes this. Brethren, if our righteousnesses, I didn't say that he did, if our righteousnesses are so bad, our righteousness is so bad, what must our unrighteousnesses be? <laughs> Third, we're likened to a fading leaf, death of a leaf, a dry, brown, dying autumn leaf, a spiritual corruption facing death. Fourth, like the wind that takes us away. Like, like the wind that takes us away. Right, living unproductively, living in sin, living excuse me, uh, not unproductively, but uh, living uh, a tree and a branch that lives productively is tapped into the source. But when it's dying at the end, what happens? The wind comes and blows it away. The final thing the guy say is saying to the community: You're going to be tossed away. You're going to be away from the presence of God. Now, this is family. This is an honest appraisal of sin. You may not hear it that much in these days, but this is what the Bible tells us. It's an honest appraisal. It's not a mistake, you know, a, a, a relatively minor infraction, too easy to overlook, forget. You know, it, it has a major eternal impact on relationship with God. And we should follow this example, recognizing what sin really is, a, ra a rancid menstrual cloth before God. You're like, yeah, this is... This is what I came to church for? Just being honest with you. But we're going to end well, because God ends well. But before we do that, look at verse 7, before we move on. Verse 7. There's no one who calls upon your name. Where did Paul get that from Romans 3? Right here. Paul says, both Jew and Greek are under sin. No one righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have sinned, turned aside, and sinned. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Genuine and deep repentance, confession of sin, what sin really is, what sin really does in our relationships with God and with others will bring us to a place of dependency upon God, listen, and a place of repentance, turning from our sin. That is why Isaiah now turns to God in these last few verses because God alone could do something about it. He could break the cycle. He could stop the punishment. He could restore us to himself. He alone is holy, and his holy hostility to sin and sinners will not and cannot change. But what is also true is his unchanging love and commitment to his redeemed. The grace and mercy, the permanency of a relationship as father, verse 8. The potter, the craftsman, he says, uh, you know, here we see the love of God, the sovereign decision of the potter, and the skill of the craftsman. What he's saying is, 
God crafted you, God made you, God took you, and if you want to be changed, you want to be transformed, if you want to be reshaped, it's got to be in the sovereign hands of God. So is there any hope? Is there any hope for the unclean leper? Is there any hope for the repulsive dirty cloths? Is there any hope for the spiritual lifeless dead leaf on a tree that's being blown away because of sin? Yes. There is hope for Israel, and there is hope for us this morning. Verses 12 through 9 through 12 tell us that. You see that, be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not the iniquity forever. Behold, please look. Your holy city has become a wilderness. You know, we know what happened to Zion because of our sins. A wilderness and a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you have been burned with fire. This has all happened to us because of our sin. But there's a desire there. And you see that in verse 9. God, be not so terribly angry, O Lord. Remember not iniquity forever. I'm running to you for forgiveness. Behold, please, look, we are all your people. It is always good, it is never too late as believers to recognize the complete and utter dependency on God, on his mercy, on his grace, on his goodness, where we find our help. Whether it's suffering because we have just sinned against God and we're bearing the consequences, whether it's just a, a testing of our faith, we run to God, we cry to God, we reach out to God, we call upon God, who is quick to hear and answer the prayers of his people. Verse 12 to close, I'll ask the band to come up. Listen, family, look at verse 12. Here's a question. Will you restrain yourselves of these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? That's the question. So as we conclude this section, we'll get to chapter 65 next week. Let's stand in awe of the, of the, of the, of the wrath of God his hatred towards sin, his holiness, the image of a blood-soaked warrior. And then we can realize all of us together today as we go to sing and worship our God with music that all of us deserve the wrath of God, the anger of God because of our sin. But, but God, right? Our suffering servant Jesus, Isaiah 53, bore our griefs, bore our sorrow carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement, our chastisement, that brought us peace. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Family, it is always good and right to remember, to recall, to repeat, to remember the gospel, this wrath-absorbing sacrifice of Jesus, the substitute who paid the debt for our sins, forgiving our sins so that we can be adopted into God's family. And family, finally, let's pray that God's word and God's spirit brings God's presence into our lives. And let's never forget, confession and repentance is a gift from God. Let's stand together. Father, Please, God, we pray that you would give us a heart today of gratitude and thanksgiving. Recognizing your holiness, our sinfulness, your love and mercy. And all those things come together on the cross.
at the cross. That Jesus lived the perfect life we could never live. Died in our place as we ought to be. Taking our sin, giving us his righteousness as our substitute. What a joy. What a, a, a word, what a truth. What mercy, love, and grace. So God, we pray, help us, God, to be people who confess sin quickly and to repent of it often and to celebrate and to preach the good news of the gospel that our sins have been forgiven, wrath has been absorbed, Jesus rose from the dead, his salvation has been secured, sacrifice accepted, and Lord, help us not only to preach it to ourselves, but to proclaim it to others, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.